Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James. I'm the author of the Pages & Co series and an arts journalist, and Book Wandering is the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. My guest this episode is Sophie Dahl. Sophie has written books across ages and genres for adults, non-fiction food writing, and most recently children's fiction, including her two Madame Badoubadar picture books illustrated by Lauren O'Hara. Sophie is also, of course, the granddaughter of Roald Dahl, who you might have heard of. Sophie's pick was The Wolves of Willoughby Chase by Joan Aiken, set in an alternate version of 19th century England and written in 1962. I was delighted that Sophie picked this as it was one of my favourites as a child and I loved going back to it. We chatted about how it's both a brilliant adventure romp and filled with nuance, the glorious food writing and its truly excellent villains. You can find Sophie's books and The Wolves of Willoughby Chase on my Case for Books page at bookshop.org.uk, which is linked below. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, it isn't geared at younger listeners. So welcome, Sophie. Thank you so much for coming and being a guest on Book Wandering. Thank you so much for having me. And I get to do my favourite thing, which is talk about talk about kids' books. Amazing. I'm glad that is there. Uh, it is honestly, I shouldn't say this about my own podcast, but like it is part of the joy. Like I get to talk to different people about gorgeous children's books and it's the most fun you could ever have. I think you should totally be allowed to say that. <laughs> so to kick off, could you tell us which book you chose and how you first encountered it? Yes. So I chose The Wolves of Willoughby Chase by Joan Aiken. Um, and I discovered this book um, when I was about nine years old. I got quite bad shingles and um, I was off school for a couple of weeks. And on my way home from the doctor, my mum took me to the village bookshop and said, you can pick whatever you like. <laughs> and um, I picked about 12 books um yep. <laughs> one the Willoughby Chase and that was the one I started with and um I loved it I loved it from from the first page in and I I still feel the same way about it I think it's just a it's a such a swashbuckling brilliant um pacey enchanting book I love it well, I was delighted that you picked it because it also was that book for me. It was one of my absolute favourites as a child, one I went back to again and again and again. Uh, so I was delighted to have a reason to go back to it. And so it's one that you read a lot as a child. Did you? Is it one that sort of stayed with you? You read as a teenager, as an adult? How often do you go back to it? Yeah, so it's one of those... Um... It's my child version of The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford. It's one of those I can go back and go go back to. Um, I've read it to both of my kids. Um, and I think it still has the set. You know, there are some books that maybe don't age as well or don't feel right. as exciting on the reread. And I think it still manages to captivate however many times you've read it. Mm -hmm. uh, such a clever, such a... Uh, an odd clever story yes well I thought actually I think it's one of those books that the people who love it love it but it's not sort of so ubiquitous that everyone has read it so I thought actually we should chat just a little bit about the kind of core story of it so do you want to kick off kind of give us a little overview of Bonnie and Sylvia yeah, so Bonnie and Sylvia are cousins and um, 
Sylvia lived with her aunt Jane, who is a frail elderly woman. And um, Bonnie's father is aunt Jane's brother. And it's decided um, that Sylvia should go and live with Bonnie and her parents um, because Aunt Jane's getting old and frail. And it's set, I think one of the things that's so clever and discombobulating about it is it's set in a fictional England. Yeah. Um, and it has the same allure of a Philip Pullman book where there are things that you recognize mm-hmm. every slightly, slightly off because of because of the place in which, you know, because of the time in which it's set, uh, because it never happened. (laughs) Uh, So they, um, one of the things I think is so clever about it is there's a channel tunnel. Yes. (laughs) Long before there was a channel tunnel. Um, And because was it, I'm just looking at when it was written. Was it? 60s? Yeah, 1962. So, um, Basically, the wolves have been driven from Siberia and have come to England through the Channel Tunnel. So the adventures that the girls have, what's clever is the wolves are this sort of backdrop for a sinister landscape. And they don't, they sort of appear now and then. Um, But the core adventure is um, Bonnie's parents are going on a journey because Bonnie's mother is unwell and um, she's going to be in the sun, be aboard a ship, get well. And um, they are left in the care of the, um, I guess we should know that she's a villainess. And uh, we know from the first time we see her that she's bad news. Uh, so she's coming to be their governess. Um, there's a few health and safety issues. <laughs> <laughs> so Willoughby is leaving his his child um, and her cousin with a woman they've never met before, but she's yeah. a dis. In, so. <laughs> um, and anyway it it sort of it all goes to pot as we imagine it's going to um under the tutelage of miss Lycarp, um and she's as wicked as we think she is mm-hmm. um and the girls adventure there is just this whole sub they end up in a terrible boarding school run by mrs brisket um there are lots of bad bad characters in on the on the plot um miss Lycarp's plot i don't want to give too much away but um, yeah, it's it's a proper rollicking adventure, um, and they are feisty, spirited heroines. And I think the thing that's Sylvia is slightly more um, timid initially, and but she she grows throughout the book. Um, and there is a heavenly character called Simon, who's the goose boy who lives in the woods, um, in in a cave, um, which was my sort of pin-up I wanted to go and live with. <laughs> it's also the other thing that I think is quite unusual about it is there's such brilliant descriptive food writing in that oh book. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, and, I mean, just, it's sort of like um, like reading Nigel Slater. <laughs> oh, my goodness, <laughs> you're so right. It, well, it's something I wanted to ask, talk to you about. Yeah, but I love proper food writing yeah. in children's books and you know you've got when Miss Slycarp first when the when the girls first realize that she is properly villainous she orders I wrote it down she orders chicken oyster patties trifle and half a bottle of champagne half a bottle as well it's so funny so well observed yeah totally I really I really really agree and also when they're 
when they've been through a period of adversity and when they're safe, they have um, delicious porridge with thick, thick cream and honey and rashes of bacon and um, a cough mixture with cherry bark and honey. And just the descriptions are so evocative and beautiful. And that's one of the many joys of it. And the first time they go to Simon's cave, um, he makes them uh, these sort of hot cakes from chestnut flour. And the other thing I remember really remembering when I was a kid is I was obsessed by the idea of what a posset was. I didn't know... <laughs> what is this what is a posset um so yeah it's um it's it's really clever it's really clever and she also uses eve i think she's so clever with food isn't she? because as well as the sort of decadent stuff even when they're at that boarding house as well the kind of the the, the raw onions and the cubes of cheese the bad food is as evocative cold cold porridge when yes. so yeah sylvia gets very ill at the boarding school and is given a bowl of cold porridge oh. Uh, and yes, the I think it's what um, it's it's such a clever trick because you go from the kind of lack to then the loving and the nurturing that is provided by kind of people that they meet along the way, um, and it makes, yeah, it makes it all the more rewarding. And actually, because I did want to ask you a bit about your own food writing, the way you use food and details. So I think this is probably a good moment to ask you to just introduce a, well you know I, I know it tells us in the book how to say it but this is probably the first time I've said it out loud and I'm nervous I'm, I have to say ooh la la before I before <laughs> I say it Madame Badobada is that right Badobada Badobada <laughs> yeah right. I literally had to um, create a book with a title that no one can say <laughs> I kind of love that though I kind of love that I feel um, like it's probably quite disagreeable of me um yeah. So could you just tell, yes, I'd love to just hear about, I think, just so people know a bit about her and your, those picture books, um, because I'd love to just ask you a little bit about the way you use food details, but just so everyone knows, knows who she is. So Madame Badoubadar is um, the elderly, nuanced protagonist um, in two books about her. So the first one is called Madame Badoubadar. The second one is called Madame Badoubadar and the Old Bones. And um, our heroine is a little girl called Mabel who lives in a seaside bed and breakfast called the Mermaid Hotel with her parents. And one day, this mysterious, growly-voiced woman um, with many bags and dogs and cats arrives. Um, and Mabel takes one look at her and thinks she's a villain. She thinks she's a Miss Lycarp. Um, and actually what we discover through the course of the story is she's 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 not a villain mm -hmm. she's kind of magical and brilliant mm -hmm. um, but she is definitely nuanced um for sure yeah. <laughs> um and she's she's disagreeable to the adults um but what she is for Mabel is this real um intuitor of what Mabel um needs and wants and so she creates these adventures that they go on together um and yeah I really I really love her as a character she's magnificent she yeah. truly is thank you um and obviously it's so it's a picture book um illustrated by with by Lauren O'Hara so obviously the 
food writing has slightly different ways of coming into being. But of course, and you, of course, have written your own, you've written your own cookbooks and recipes. Um, but there's got some gorgeous little details, like she's always eating toffees and you've got your banana eating tortoise. I'd love to hear just a bit about kind of why you enjoy food details so much and how you kind of picked out, plucked which details to tell your readers what you wanted to about her and her tortoise. <laughs> It's a really good question. So I um I think because I think the first answer to that is because I grew up on books like The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Right. And, right. Um Ronnie the Robber's Daughter, Astrid Lindgren, um, the Moomin books. Uh, all all of them share a thread in that there's brilliant descriptions around food in them. Um, I'm greedy and um I love um still as an adult, I love uh, reading food writing writing as though I were reading fiction so I have the same level of enjoyment from reading good food writing as I do from reading a novel Mm. so in my own books um it just feels um important to have to have in there and always when I thought about Madame Badibada because she's badly behaved there was something about this woman eating toffee in front of everyone and not offering it to anyone else Mm -hmm. um and also I think children often think mashed bananas are fairly disgusting and so they're having this slightly sinister tort. <laughs> it's true. I re- I have like really visceral memories of being a child and being repulsed by my mum eating mashed banana on toast. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I think um, mashed bananas and the other one that children, I think, really object to is um, I know a lot of kids who have visceral memories about people people either mashing bananas at nursery school so when they're all sitting down having their (laughs) mashing a banana or poking holes in bits of cucumber (laughs) and I really I just I like I like those um I like the minutiae in things and I think food is a good one and I think it's really it it tells us useful things about characters um like Miss Lycox half a bottle of I just think it's I think it's funny so yeah that's the I think I've done it in um in my grown-up books too and actually the worst sleepover in the world there's the sort of morning after the night before right everything's been upside down and chaotic and the kids come down to mum making pancakes and cooking bacon and it sort of feels like everything's going to be okay yeah yeah Uh, yeah I, I that that makes sense to me I love that and you know what I reminded to talk about the champagne because the other bit that champagne comes in is when the um angelic Dr Field uh, when they rescue Aunt Jane, and the first thing that they give her is just a few sips of champagne. They revive her, yeah. <laughs> a teaspoon or two of champagne. I know it's so funny. I love she's sort of she's so kind of wantonly delicate, Aunt Jane. Yeah. Uh, and there's something so tragic about she. She the, the detail that I love about her is. Do you remember in the beginning where they um, where she's making Sylvia's clothes yes. from her from the curtain that separates their room. Mm. Um, yeah she's she's a kind of ghostly slightly tragic character but she yes. it ends well for her yes because actually I I one of the joys I think this is when I didn't realize this until I reread this for us to chat about it that the book started as uh Joan Aiken wanting to do a kind of pastiche of a gothic adventure yes and it started as a kind of playful exercise which I love 
yeah it really has that doesn't it you can and you can sort of see see where she was going because it has that sort of um they're they're almost like caricatures they're sort of their names and um and they're they're so wonderfully wicked yes these are the villains like they're just elite but the good people as well are, are you know so good without ever it never feels like a saccharine book at yeah. all well I think because again because they're quite sort of odd I mean I think it's that's that's the thing about Simon the Goose Boy you know I love the idea of this sort of strange young man showing up and <laughs> living in a cave and making chestnut cakes it's quite it's, it's quite out there yes and actually I would say one thing I found reading it as an adult is I still adored it but you do have I almost mourned the lack of just understanding of the world that you have as a child because with Sam, you're like, what is Mr. Willoughby doing? Like, he's just like, yeah, cool. This kid can live in a cave and I'm just, I'm cool with that. Or he's like, oh, you have to look after yourself. And he does come to some, you know, everyone gets a happy ending who deserves one and he's better looked after. But those elements are, you because you just can't help but bring some sort of level of, rationality to it and I think also I I remember reading it as a child and the this sounds macabre but I think this is just what kids are like the the cruelty that Bonnie and Sylvia experience you almost read it with a, a thrill as a child because it's unconnected to reality I loved give me a, an orphan story with absentee parents right and, and wicked I think I think there is such a joy in in those sorts of stories um and I think you know it's why it's why Philip Pullman and Michael Morpurgo and Catherine Rundell you know all those people have have continued to to um carry the banner of the you know it's important because they reflect they reflect life um I think you know we need our we need our villains and um and our heroes and heroines and and I think we need them to be we need them to be nuanced but I think we also you know there is a thrill in that sort of wickedness and also um in thinking that all is lost that sort of you know you think oh no that you know all is lost they're at Mrs Biscuit and then and then it's and then it's all right you know it really keeps you such a such a cliff edge um yeah it's 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 sophisticated. I think um, they are Joan Aiken's other kids. You know that th- there is a sophistication to them, and I think they're like the best kids' books. There is nothing um, patronising about that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Did you see? There's a brilliant. Um, there's a thing that I wrote down that is in the beginning of the book, um, and it says. Um, Suitable for anyone from seven to seventy, Wolves, in fact, is almost a copybook lesson in those virtues that a classic children's book must possess. Charm, well of its own, skill and authority to create a small world without writing down to small readers. Oh, perfect. It is, yeah, it is it is exactly it is exactly that. Um, I think it's 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 a real joy. Mm. And she's so clever, like you say, it's sophisticated because amongst these, you know, villainous villains and wonderful 
um, heroic adults. There is so much nuance and there is little just the suggestions of for young readers. Maybe you want to think about this. Little things like Bonnie, who has grown up in this life of privilege and it's very gentle but you know there's just her kind of gradual realization that she kind of knows how to do a bit more now and actually learning how to take care of herself is maybe uh, it's maybe a good thing and even Mr Willoughby maybe has a bit of a realization that you know if there's a child living in a cave you maybe should look after him and it's very gentle but it's just putting in those here are some things for you to think about to young readers you're really in a, re in, a, in, a in a in a subtle way you're right you're right and actually I do think on the reread as an adult um so Willoughby's behavior is is actually pretty cavalier yes <laughs> he's so stressful <laughs> Leaves his, he leaves his child <laughs> and and her cousin with this with this woman that he doesn't know and he leaves her in charge of 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 running his house and um and actually she's 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 a criminal she's yes. with, got bad she's got bad intentions um and there is a sort of he's 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 slightly um I think again like so many of those good stories that he is sort of there is something oddly absentee about both of them. Even when they come back, they're still, there's a sort of completely disconnected. Um, and I think that that's why the children can sort of get on with it as they do. It, it, it leaves the stage open for them. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it, it is interesting. It does make you think. Um, and yeah, the, the kind of, I think what's so clever about it is even the sm smaller characters they all have attributes and what you really know who they are. No one feels Absolutely. that they're... Yeah. Like lovely Mr. Wilderness, which again is just such a brilliant name, isn't it? <laughs> just, <laughs> I love how it is very kind of Dickensian, isn't it? You know, it's uh, with with the names. The the only one, you know, Ab Abagnigo, is that how you say the lawyer? Gripe. He's, you know, he's the one she throws you off being like, oh, is he a, is he a, is he a villain or not? But it's uh, utterly wonderful. Yeah, and like you say, all those small characters, they all have such purpose whilst also feeling no nothing ever feels like a plot device, even though it's such a pacey, plotty book. Yes, I know. It's, it's, it's again, it's, it's cleverness. And also it's, um, it's the perfect length, I mm -hmm. think, of a story as well. It's, um, it's a really good book, I think, for kind of middle grade um Read, I think it's one of the, you can you can you can read it out loud, but also um, I think children from ages sort of I guess eight nine mm -hmm. and up could read it could read it alone, and I think it would it, it would totally um, it would totally work. Mm -hmm. And you said you'd read it to both of your daughters. Um, did they? Did they have? A, did they love it? Did you? Or did you have any? Do you have any anxiety when you read beloved books to your children and hope that they love it as much as you do? Or <laughs> yeah, they, it's interesting. So um, my elder daughter um, didn't love it that much. Okay, um, she she. But I think I probably tried to read it to her when she was a bit too young. I get overexcited to share it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think she was a little bit too young when I tried to read it to her. And then um, my younger daughter um, read it to herself and absolutely, absolutely loved it. 
um, and, um, really, but she also sort of similarly loves, um, she loves an orphan story. So she's very, Hetty Feather, uh, Astrid Lindgren, um, she's a big Moomin fan, uh, whereas uh, my older daughter is more a fan, uh, she's, 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 12 she's likes a dystopian um dystopian um, right fiction kind of YA fiction Uh I'd love to talk a bit about how you came to write for children um was it something that you you've obviously written across sort of ages and genres was writing for children something you always wanted to do at some point or was it something you kind of came to organically as you wrote other things um I very much came to it so um it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in doing and then I had children um and can often be the trajectory for a writer because I was suddenly reading to them the books that I had loved a little and discovering new authors through them um and I got this sort of brain worm um in the form of Madame Badoubadar she sort of was was sitting in my head and I just had this picture in my head um of a bad-tempered um elderly woman with crunchy red hair (laughs) coming across um the manager's daughter and um that that was that was that was how it was born so yeah it was it was a an odd totally organic thing I love that and do you, how consciously do you think about the books that you loved as a child when you are writing for young people? Because I've had a really mixed experience. Sometimes books feel very much their own thing, whereas the what I'm writing at the moment feels really actively in conversation with books I loved as a child. And I was wondering, so with Wolves or other books, how much are you, yeah, how much I guess do you feel like you're in conversation with them or are they more kind of sort of just foundational sort of where the love of it comes from probably um certainly so far more a foundation so madame badoubadar um because in my early years of school i was in america um and some of the classic books that i read in um first grade were big long picture books uh, like like that format uh so Eloise Make Way Friends, uh Madeline um and I liked the idea of doing something that felt that it could potentially be for kids who were a bit older but that it still had that feel of a of a picture book so a sort of juicy <laughs> Juicy picture book. Um, and yeah, I think I think the thing that I try and really um hold on to this, this thing that Catherine Rundell said recently um when she was um talking about her new book. Mm-hmm. I read it to you because I think it's so oh, yes, yes. I think it's so brilliant. And um so she said. So um, at her book party, she concluded her speech by saying, 
I am proud to be part of the community that offers children such rich, bone-deep joy. When you love a book as a child, you love it hungrily. We who write for children have a duty not to give those who are hungry anything cheap or underthought or vapid or uncared for. The writers and artists in this room rise so, per- rise so superbly to that challenge. I think of those who make children's books as a great chorus, singing a song that was handed down to us about tenacity and invention and the importance of good food and good jokes and endurance and love, and it will be picked up and sung on by the generation coming after us. I am so proud to be one of those singing that song. And she, I literally, she's so good. <laughs> I read that and I was like, yes, that is it. You know, it's 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 exactly that. I think I think the books that we all loved as kids, you know, um, be it Judy Bloom, Joan Aitken, Tove Janssen, um, you know, then later on, Mallory Blackman, Michael, you know, the list goes on and on and on. I think it's, it's, they are, they are, they are stories that are timeless and that talk about what it is to be human. And I think that's, 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 that's the backbone for me. And I don't know about for you, I imagine, I imagine, I imagine that for you too. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The things that that inform you, it's that sort of, um, that idea of, of 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 what it means what it means to be human absolutely oh Catherine she said I actually was at the launch and heard it live and I think the whole room just was just silent in amazement with goosebumps listening to her say it she's so wonderful <laughs> so wonderful it's so moving and it's so true and I love that um the book she wrote um why you should yes <laughs> Why you should children's books? I can never say that. Even though you are so old and wise, (laughs) Um, and it's such it's such a clever, sage, brilliant book, and it is so true. And I think you know it's it's why so many of us became writers is because we read we read stories that reflected the truth and um, that had protagonists that we could relate to um and those books had adversity and they had adventure and they were a safe place and I think that's yeah, that's she, I think she captures it she captures it so beautifully I'm so interested now in you in, what's your new book that is in oh. conversation <laughs> that is in conversation with books you loved as a as a child I wanted to just go back and ask you so um it's called well the series is called the Chronicles of Weatherway, or maybe the Weatherway Chronicles, but still umming and ahhing. It's one of those ones which um, it doesn't, it probably doesn't really matter, but you know what it's like. It feels very, it feels very important to get it right. Uh, and it's a fantasy quartet. You know what? I haven't got a good elevator pitch, but yeah, I need to practice this. I'm still editing it. Sorry, I caught you. I caught, I caught you on that. <laughs> but it's basically, it's fantasy um, where the magic system is all to do with the changing seasons and I'm a big fantasy girl and uh, well my what I always say is it's what I'm going for is Earthsea via Brambley Hedge that's my so I want because I was a big Tolkien girl I love Earthsea but I also wanted it you know what we were talking about those cozy details and the food so I wanted to try and combine the kind of epic fantasy I loved with the cozy stories that I loved we'll see I don't know how I don't know how 
while I'm working. But that's the ambition. <laughs> that's a really good ambition. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, and of course, you grew up in a family of storytellers, obviously your grandfather particularly notably, but you grew up around writers and actors and all different forms of storytelling. And, you know, just as we talk about the way that the books we read as a young person built us, I'd love to hear about just how growing up around stories in lots of different forms impacted you as a as a reader, but then as a writer. Yeah. So I think um, it's something I I think about a lot. And I think that I think that for my grandfather's generation, um, I think they met so much of the sorrows, um, you know, so wars, um, I think in his case, uh, later life, the loss of a child, um, the uh, brain injury of another child. I think that, I think that, writers met those sorrows with with storytelling um and with i guess that's culturally how we've always uh met what life throws at us so through story through song through that you can take you can take the difficult things um and kind of mine them for gold and um, I think that was the thing I learned from a young age that you could take something, take a small injustice or and and turn and turn it into a story. And I think that's how many of us kind of met difficult teachers or um, you know, complex circumstances. Um, I think the thing that my family, gave me the freedom um to do was that it, it it felt like a kind of tangible um life goal to be, to be a writer um you know so I was talking about this the other day but so my husband's a musician and he um is from a family where although they were all incredibly artistic and actually music is a huge thread throughout his family but because um, they were, his grandparents were first generation um, immigrants and refugees, um, that they didn't have, they didn't have the opportunity to, you know, it, it became that they were hobbying, hobbying musicians rather than career musicians, um, when actually they all had the talent to go to go and be career musicians. So it's a, it's a sort of interesting, um, it's an interesting thing, I think yeah the the gift for me um, of growing up in the family that I did with with the people um that told their stories as they did was that it felt like oh this is something that I could potentially um go on and do uh, which which I, I think I'm uh, you know was was very privileged to to sort of have you know ha- have access to that yeah I think it's so true when I when I was growing up being an being a writer wasn't presented as something that was like a real the thing one could do yeah. <laughs> I'd never met an author and I think when I go into schools it's one of the things I really kind of try to say that you know these all these these jobs about storytelling or art are are real jobs that are not being naive about you know they are jobs fraught with complications and as you say 
the way that privilege and the ability to sort of have a go, but just that they are real things that you can do if you want to. You can have a go. You can try and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think also that it's that sort of that. I remember going to see a careers advisor. (laughs) (laughs) You remember doing those kind of awful kind of, I remember, you know, the careers advisor being on some enormous computer. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I can't remember what they suggested I do, but it bore no correlation to anything that I was a interested in or b good at or you know it was sort of I remember feeling quite crushed after that after that meeting and I think it is so important for educators and writers um to 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 make that visible as a reality Mm -hmm. oh my goodness yeah careers I can I can really remember because again I don't think I like it's when you say you felt crushed because it's you feel so unseen don't you <laughs> how could I tell this person and her database all that I am and matters to me and I remember that mine came out as either an occupational therapist which it, it, cool but like why <laughs> I don't have any interests that relate to that or a prison warden of all things like <laughs> what what algorithm of whatever database produced I don't and and I just was so thrown because I didn't know I had no idea what I should do, and um, I can I can really just remember being told yeah a prison warden or an occupational therapist and you're just like cool right that there's no resemblance to my existence. <sighs> and Jamie did his. I think they told him that he should be a grave digger. You know, also just like, why are some of these jobs on these databases? Obviously, I understand that people need to be prison wardens and grave diggers, but they feel curious inclusions when you're ta- talking to sort of fifteen-year-olds. Yeah, it's, I think. Yeah, I think grave digging kind of feels quite niche, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, and yeah, because part of the purpose is you know helping you decide what A levels to do, or if you want to go to university and. <laughs> sending a 15 year old off on a very that feels like quite a specific and limiting career path as well in terms of if you're aiming at 15 to be a grave digger and then you change your mind it feels like you might be on a path that's hard to come back from and I really I need to ask Jamie like what 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 questions he answered (laughs) like being outside it it, it will be isn't it it's so funny because they're so it is things like I dread to think what I said that it's probably like do you like telling people what to do or something like that yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like prison warden <laughs> yes have you got a lot of authority yes <laughs> I dread to think actually it's probably a fairly um damning um reaction to my teenage personality <laughs> uh, but that's one to delve into with my therapist at another time perhaps um <laughs> I just wanted to ask you a couple more things before we wrapped up um firstly um I I really enjoy reading people's work like directly next to the book that they've picked and it's it's fun and one of the things that really struck me about um Madame Padubadar and Wolves is the I mean we've talked about the evocative food but they both have such an incredible sense of place and the Mermaid Hotel is so wonderful with its I don't I don't want to do too many spoilers but the new book obviously has its uh reveals its secrets a bit earlier on with its uh kind of magical twist um I'd love to hear about how you kind of 
created The Mermaid and also how you worked with Lauren in terms of, because it's full of such delicious details. And I'd love to hear about how you came up with those and then how you worked with Lauren to realise them in her artwork. Um, so I love, um, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm kind of geeky about um, minutia. I love detail. Um, and the Mermaid Hotel was so um, strong in my head, as was the landscape of where it was set. So um, my paternal grandmother um, lived in Angring on sea in Sussex. And uh, one of my oldest friends lives in Littlehampton, close to Angring. And I really had this um, sense of a sleepy seaside town, old Regency buildings that were different colours and slightly kind of fraying around the edges. Um, and that, you know, that what you saw on the inside was a total surprise. And one of the things I'd, I'd seen, um, so Lauren um, and her sister, who's called Natalia O'Hara, um, had... Um, written two beautiful books together as the O'Hara sisters, uh, Natalie writes, Lauren illustrates, and um, one of them is um, Hortense and the Shadow and the other is the Bandit Queen. And what I loved about Lauren's illustrations is that they are, there's always sort of worlds within worlds and you can keep finding um, stuff to sort of dive back into. And um, so having seen um having seen the books um i went to walker our publisher and said um you know do you think lauren could come on board she came on board um and we had a lot of um phone conversations and sent each other lots of photographs and pictures she came and had lunch um and um it's it's so it's such an interesting process how it how it works and actually interestingly with the second book we spoke much less but I think because we already had a kind of shorthand between us and because the book had um had an identity and had it sort of I think for both of us it was this really we could both dive back you know I think that's the beauty of um of a sequel <laughs> know your you know your world and your people and your and your place and so you can sort of get on with the adventure and the story because that stuff is already sort of set up it's the underpinnings of it are there uh, and actually I kind of thought that the illustrations for Madame Badoobadab were so enchanting and beautiful and I thought oh they can't be bettered and then down the old bones the pictures came out I was like, oh my god they're just they're so rich and um deep and um and brilliant and I think that's um yeah it's it feels like such a treat actually to be able to have um that sort of shorthand with someone and to be able to um to make flesh those things that you that that you that you think in your head um yet they are they are they come directly from Lauren. It's it's so clever. She, they are wonderful. They are wonderful. Yeah. Super, super talented. Uh, to finish, I thought a nice place to wrap up because so much of your books is about, you know, 
that Mabel is an adventurer and so much of the books about this sense of adventure. And I think that I hope you are happy for me today. I felt really like Mabel and Bonnie are kind of twin adventurous spirits. Oh, so. a high, high compliment. <laughs> so one place I thought would be a nice place to sort of finish is uh, the your books are so much to do with this idea of a spirit of, of adventure and Mabel calls herself an adventurer. And I really felt rereading Wolves that Bonnie and uh, Mabel had this kind of twin soul adventurous spirit. Such a high, such a high compliment. Because uh, <laughs> I, I totally love Bonnie Green. I think she's she's such a she's such a brilliant, um, brave protagonist. And I've got a list of them. Um, I've got a real list of um, the ones who resonated with me over the years. And I don't know whether you've ever read um, Ronnie the Robber's Daughter by Astrid Lincoln. Oh my god! Okay, so it, it it has the same feeling of the wolves of Willoughby Chase. It's it is um, sort of dark and um, magical, and is about family and love, and but this really brave, um, impulsive. She often kind of gets it wrong. She's got a terrible temper. Um, but she's such a she's such a brilliant, brilliant character, Ronya. And um, sorry, my dog is sitting next to me eating her foot. <laughs> really noise. Um, but yeah, I think they really um, they really have stuck with me over the years. Um, some of these, I mean, actually, yeah, that they, they, they all tend to be young women. Who else is on that list, as well as as well as those two? Pippi Longstocking. Oh. I love her. I love her. I love that she is brave and funny, but also that she can't not tell lies. Yes, incredible. <laughs> um, there is a wonderful one of the kind of older characters that I was thinking about um, when I wrote Madame Badoobadar is um, there's a brilliant book by Barbara Cooney called Miss Rumpheus, uh, which is an American picture book. Um, and she she um spreads flowers wherever she goes and she's called the lupin lady um and i think um lyra balacqua sethi uh, from noughts and, and crosses um una from rumor gardens the peacock spring feather um i think that they all are soulful curious um questioners and um I like their their depths in fact I think because I was nearly going to talk to you about Rumor Godden's book The Green Summer um and then I thought that it, it, it might be a little bit too old um but I her her protagonists are so brilliant and nuanced and um I love the way she writes and I think she is a kind of wildly unsung author have you have you have you have you have you have you read much of her um to my shame no she is someone I have bought I have so many of her books because I'm told so consistently how wonderful she is by bookish friends um uh and I must I must find the time yeah they're really they are that sort of getting into a, a kind of warm bath and mm. oh my god how did I live with that right okay 
I must, I must prioritize it. Yeah. The, the, so Green Gage Summer, the Peacock Spring, um, the Didicoy, they're, they're really, um, really, and again, they really, they, they really stand up um, because they share that, 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 that commonality of it's about, it's about the characters. It's about the human, the human story. Um, so I think for my books and my heroines, I want them to, I want them to feel uh, flesh and blood, and I want them to inhabit them themselves in the same way, um, you know that 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 a human does. Um, they, you know they get it wrong. They're nosy, uh, like Pippi Longstocking. They might tell lies. Uh, Madame Badoubadar might be slightly light fingered. Yes, <laughs> um, you know, but but they are they are fundamentally um, good people. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think that is a lovely place to finish. Thank you so much. Oh, thank uh, you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you. Oh, so, 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 so nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. If you're enjoying the podcast, then spreading the word would be greatly appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends, or leaving a review where you listen. You can find me at A Case of Books across social media, or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And we'll be back next week with C. Pam Zhang on A Wrinkle in Time. Until then, happy book wandering. Mm-hmm.